Welcome to Dog Save the People, a show about how dogs make our lives better. My name is John Bartlett, and I'm your host. In one of our previous episodes, we talked about a dog's sense of smell with psychology professor Ellen Furlong. She had mentioned that a dog's sense of smell is so good that it could detect a smell as tiny as a teaspoon of sugar within two Olympic-sized swimming pools. So it is not surprising that dogs can make terrific detectives, too. Scent detection dogs, also known as cadaver dogs, are trained to hone their natural abilities and instincts of the nose for helping to solve crimes and mysteries. From locating missing people on active murder cases to discovering historic burial grounds, these cadaver dogs can be incredibly important assistants in this process. Author and former professor Kat Warren, the New York Times bestselling author of What the Dog Knows, worked with her dog Solo as a scent detection dog and saw just how powerful these abilities are and how rewarding this service can be for the dog and humans too. Kat, thank you for joining us today on Dog Save the People. Where are we speaking to you from today? So I'm in Durham, North Carolina. Okay. It's beautiful. I didn't grow up here, but there's so much about this state that I love. I grew up in Oregon. I had a first career as a newspaper reporter, and then I went back for an additional degree, a PhD, and then came here in 95 to take an academic job at NC State. Yes. I have just recently joined the world of higher ed, and I've been now working with Marist College for two years. And boy, it's been quite an education. And it has been fascinating to be able to meet these students where they are. I came in sort of as a mid-career move into academia and had a wonderful career. I retired just last July. Congratulations. So Kat, let's take you back to Oregon. What was your relationship with dogs like growing up? My father was a man who was a sort of serious academic, intellectual, really kind man. And he was in fisheries and wildlife. But my mother was in a wheelchair. So my mother was pretty profoundly paralyzed from her chest down. And we had these unruly female Irish setters (laughs) who roamed the house and had few rules, although the damage that they did was kind of limited. But it was really funny because these these dogs who always had names like Tammy and Sadie and Liffy and Molly, all these little girly girl names, but they were for my father, the spot where he could literally just sit back in his chair and he would have the head of one of these glossy Irish setters on his lap. You know, this is a man who took almost no time for himself between my mother and a really great academic career, but really difficult because his whole life, he sort of negotiated these things. And so the appreciation that I still feel for these dogs who were not my favorite kind of dog, but who fit in so beautifully with what my father needed. I love the vision and the visual of your father with one of the dogs in his lap to kind of relax and find some solace. Yes. Now, one of the things that I read about your growing up, cat was that you always loved animals growing up, dogs and horses. 
and that you had a book, an animal book, one of which was about a cocker spaniel. Oh my God, I loved that book. And it's so <laughs> funny because, you know, we didn't have a TV when I was growing up. My father thought we should get out on the land and read books and ergo we did. Yes. But Prince Tom was this book that really was about this little runt of a litter cocker spaniel. The hero of this book was a lonely man mm-hmm. and this dog. There I am, I'm eight or nine years old and I am totally relating to this person as an adult and this relationship he has with this small dog. And actually, I think I can admit on this show that we are waiting for a new puppy to come into our lives. And John, you just made me realize that I'm getting a spaniel. I'm getting a spaniel puppy. And up to this moment, I did not make that connection with that childhood book, right? Because I'm going, oh my God, I'm going from German Shepherds, which it's going to make some people sort of like, what are you thinking? To a silky little spaniel. It makes total sense now. I guess it does. Oh, I love that. Who was the first German Shepherd that came into your life? So my first German Shepherd was a dog named Tarn. And I was living in France at the time and coming back to the United States getting my master's degree in French literature. And I realized that I had always been in love with German shepherds, Mm -hmm. even though Irish setters. And even though my parents, thinking that I was very small for my age, which I was, decided that they would get me a miniature dachshund as my first dog. (laughs) (laughs) This is why therapy, right? (laughs) (laughs) But my wonderful parents actually researched and found me a German Shepherd in Oregon and a pup. And I had him for 12 years and he was a true companion. I mean, I moved hither and yon. You know, he flew with me. Sometimes we drove across the country to go from one job or another because I was pretty peripatetic. I had a newspaper jobs. So he lived in California and Wyoming and Connecticut and adjusted to all these different places with kind of amazing aplomb. And I think I was so lucky to have that dog. No dog's perfect, right? But he was a, I'll go anywhere and do anything with you kind of dog. Wonderful. And you had him for 12 years? I had him for 12 years. Beautiful. Yes. Now, Kat, talk to me about Solo. So Solo was a singleton, which means the only pup in the litter. And what was very interesting about it was that I'd never experienced this before. His breeder was super knowledgeable about how many issues singletons can have. They never learn how to speak dog (laughs) properly, right? That early litter interaction is so crucial for them to understand limits and know what pain means when they're taking it or applying it because puppies are exchanging all these signals, right? Thousands of signals a day in a litter. And Solo had none of that. And as a result, he was absolutely full of himself. (laughs) That's sort of the upside. The downside was he was a little bit of a sociopath. (laughs) 
where empathy was not exactly something that came hardwired in him, certainly with other dogs. And so he was his entire life a little, um, well, he was an ass for yeah. most of his life with other dogs. Okay. And it was very interesting to see how that thing, which I viewed as kind of heartbreaking and what was I going to do, but that is precisely what led into my looking at something that would be a real outlet for him. Really loved people. He loved us. He was super smart. And he had a really good nose, and I'd never appreciated that in a dog before because, you know, I had dogs in obedience rings, and their noses to me were sort of like that was the downside of a dog because that's what distracted them exactly. from perfect obedience. Yes. <laughs> and starting to watch this dog and go, his nose rules. And I actually took him to a trainer who I knew who was deeply practical and wonderful. And this is where she suggested, why don't you train him as a cadaver dog? I had no idea what that meant, right? Right. And the other term that's used quite commonly is human remains detection dogs. So that oh, wow. kind that of right, HRD. I knew he was not going to make a good nursing home therapy dog. That was the beginning of a new life where Solo truly led me into new worlds. So my understanding about the cadaver dogs and working dogs, but in this specific field, is that they find missing people. They can also detect drugs and bombs, pinpoint unmarked graves of Civil War soldiers, and even find drowning victims below the surface of a lake. With human reminds detection dogs, they are only alerting to the scent of human decomposition. So you have these categories, you have bomb detection dogs, you have drug detection dogs. And of course you have dogs that are trained to find live human scent. So those yes, search and rescue dogs. And so Kat, this new life with Solo inspired you to write a book. Yes. And at first, actually, John, I was really, truly reluctant to write a book. Mm -hmm. And part of it was that doing this work it wasn't a secret life, quote unquote, but it was a life that was so removed from my work as an academic and so precious to me as just experience and not making it into a product, if that makes sense. Right. That makes total sense. It was all process. And so for a long time, I actually resisted writing about the experience. And then there was this day, we did an extraordinarily hard search in the case of a really brutal murder, and we didn't find the victim, but Solo had just worked his heart out on that search, and he had injured himself during the search and just kept working, and you know, I came home, and beneath my knees, I was just absolutely covered with ticks and mm -hmm. just exhausted, but so proud of this dog it's not just about finding the person. It's equally about knowing where the person isn't. And so having a dog that can work all day and not what we call false alert, right? Say that there is something there that isn't. 
you know, and we were searching ponds and marshes and all day long, he had just done it without any alerts. And we came home and I was so exhausted. And I just remember saying, I don't want to forget this. I don't want to forget this feeling. And I will forget if I don't write. That was the beginning. He was, you know, he was sort of in, he was in his prime. He was like four and a half years old. And the book came out when he was eight. And in a way, when I wrote the book, I looked at this fairly broad category of scent detection dogs. But it's also true that I really concentrated on human remains detection dogs and what their capabilities are. One of the things that I see happening far too often is that I see scent detection dogs where they really shouldn't be scent detection dogs. Mm. In other words, that is not work that they should be doing. And in that case, it's actually weirdly irresponsible because it's not just the dog doesn't really love it. It's like somebody's life can be at stake as well, right? So that you have this extra responsibility to say, it isn't a given. You can get the dog with the most perfect background, genetics, training, et cetera, coming to you at eight weeks old. And there's no saying by the time that dog is a year and a half old, that it's going to be a great search and rescue dog, as much as that's what we want for that. Now, Kat, you've spoken with many experts from cognitive psychologists to historians and medical examiners. Can you tell me some of the things that you've learned from the different people you've talked with along the way? What was so joyful for me about writing this book? The writing part is always <laughs> super, super hard once when you sit down. Yes. But researching and reporting was just wonderful because I got to really talk to all the people I wanted to talk to. <laughs> And I love that thing where you find somebody where you can sit at their feet and listen and just absorb their knowledge to you. This is part of the lesson that you learn, too, is dog lovers. We tend to want dogs to be perfect. We tend to want to have them have all these capacities that are just astounding. But the fact is, is that dogs work with us. I mean, they co-evolved with us. That's what makes that relationship work. And it nonetheless takes amazing talent on the part of trainers and handlers to bring that out in a dog, and simultaneously remember that they have to bring that out in themselves, right? Bad handling can just be the ruination of a dog that might have been naturally have a great nose, great drive, great desire to do the work. But you take that and pair it with a handler who's a little brutal or who tends to overrelate to the dog and not allow the dog to be independent. This is part of the, when we talk about the coevolution, is that dogs learn to read us very, very, very well. When we're going out on a search to find a missing person, or if we're in a house looking for a couple drops of blood, it is so incredibly important 
that I as a handler do not make assumptions about where that might be and that I am not up my dog's rear. Yes. <laughs> chattering at him. Sola was such a great lesson for how do you bring out the best in a dog? Well, actually, sometimes by giving them some independence. What do you think that the dogs get out of these roles as working dogs, cadaver dogs? If you think about like a herding border collie, a herding dog, and you ask yourself, what is the dog getting out of it? For those, some of those functions, the dog is actually getting joy in the actual thing that it's doing, right? Mm -hmm. The act of herding for a herding dog is not just to please its handler or owner. There's also the fact that these dogs are doing what comes naturally. It gets honed, it gets directed. So when we think about scent detection dogs, the fact is is that the nose is just one of those 40% of a dog's brain is devoted to its olfactory system. And so for many of these dogs, scent is central to the act of hunting. And so for scent detection dogs, the reward comes both doing the hunting for the thing and getting the reward. So a reward for a hunting dog earlier would have been catching and killing the rabbit. We replace the rabbit with toys in play with us. Yes. And the dog finds both things super rewarding, both the chasing after scent, even if it is the scent of somebody who's deceased, And then once you find that scent, to be able to play with the human who is saying, that was exactly what I wanted you to find. Right. And where has your research with dogs been taking you of late? What's been interesting to you? The dog that I'm working with now is a shepherd. He's four years old, super sensitive. Mm -hmm. And partly because he had Parvo as a pup. And I think that it truly, these early socializing moments are incredibly important. He was shut down when he arrived at our house. And it was, it was really heartbreaking, right? Because as you say, you know, you invest all of this stuff, right? Your hopes, your dreams, your ego, Dogs are humbling if you're willing to listen what they need and want because they will truly disappoint you if you have these rigid categories. And if you're open to saying, what is it that this dog can teach me? What is it that this dog will enjoy? What is it that this dog embodies? I've learned so much from Rev. I've become a much better trainer, much better trainer, because this is a dog where the environment really affects him. And it's like, how do we work so that you and I feel good moving through the world? So I'm not deploying Rev right now because it is not something because of his environmental insensitivities and everything that comes naturally, although he's Mm -hmm. made a ton of progress. What I'm working on is historic human remains work. So I concentrate and collaborate with archaeologists and public historians and community activists on African-American burying grounds. 
and earlier, we've got sort of, we have so many sets of problems in this country. If we think about, for instance, for Native Americans, the boarding schools that their children were forced into and looking for the burial grounds around those boarding schools is something where human remains detection dogs can play a really central role because they can help narrow down an area where those burials are. And then following up, you know, you have history, you have maps, you have community, oral knowledge, combining that where the dogs help narrow the area down, and then using something like ground penetrating radar as sort of corroborating evidence. Because in these cases, you're not going to disinter. You're not actually going to dig up right. what's there because that is against the entire ethos of yes. the community, right? And working on a project in Western North Carolina with incarcerated railroad workers right after emancipation, something that was just absolutely common is, is that former slaves were immediately thrown in prison on few pretexts, right? And then forced back onto the plantations where they had once been slaves. In this case, forced to build a railroad in the mountains of North Carolina for the state where hundreds died of exposure and disease and mistreatment. So using dogs to help try to narrow down those areas of where the workers might have been buried. So being able to use the dogs in that context, because properly trained, they're very good at old burials. Everything that you're doing is so fascinating. And again, I've learned so much from this. This is the first time that I've really been able to delve into this world. Your book, What the Dog Knows, Scent Science in the Amazing Ways Dog Perceive the World, has recently come out with a Young Reader's Edition. Where might we find you online and on social media? I've got a website, catwarren.com, and I'm on Twitter at cat underscore warren. I've got an author page on Facebook as well. Wonderful. Thank you. Every dog trainer that I've ever spoken to has always talked about this idea of giving dogs a sense of purpose, giving them a job. And this is something that I can see in this work that Kat is doing with her dog Solo and that these dogs are doing in the fields. It's giving them an incredible sense of purpose. And for me, it's something that is so noble. I love this idea of dogs being able to help their humans and then to play with them afterwards. There's such an incredible type of relationship that these people are creating with their dogs. And I love what Kat and Solo have done and that she's been able to really document this and write it down because it really is incredibly important work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dog Save the People, a podcast about how dogs make our lives better. This show is made by As It Should Be, a production company and content studio. It is made with the support of Scott Benaglio, executive producer, and Jack Summer, our producer and editor. And special thanks to Daniel Lampert, our neighbor and composer, for creating the music for the show. You can follow Dog Save the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
You can also follow our show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. To sign up for our monthly email newsletter, you can go to dogsavethepeople.com. On the website, you'll also be able to find merch in our new online gift shop. This includes shirts from the Tiny Tim Rescue Fund, my foundation, where profits go to supporting independent rescues and shelters. If you have any questions or submissions, please drop a note to the email address bark at dogsavethepeople.com. Enjoy a walk with your dog outside and make it a great day for both of you. Thank you.